0: You're listening to the Emily Rooney Show. While well, a case legal theorists have been watching closely broke this morning when a Haverhill teenager was found guilty of motor vehicle homicide, at issue, whether 18 year old Aaron DeVoe was texting when the vehicle he was driving crossed the median line and hit a car head on, killing Donald Bowley Jr. and seriously injuring his girlfriend. DeVoe testified yesterday that he was not texting in the moments leading up to the crash and told the jury instead that he was distracted by all the homework that was piling up. But prosecutors had built a stellar case revealing that DeVoe had sent and received 193 messages on February 20, 2011, the day of the crash, including one that was sent two minutes Prior to the collision, the case is significant because the jury found that DeVoe was negligent, meaning it was not an accident. He was sentenced by a judge this morning to two and a half years behind bars. I mean, two and a half years, only one of which he actually has to spend behind bars. I'm joined here now on the telephone by David Rossman. He's a professor of law at Boston University and the director of their criminal programs in clinical law. Welcome, David. Well, you said that you've been following this, as we all have. So the state of Massachusetts has made texting while driving a crime. Um, So this is the first time that it's been used in in a case like this. And he was charged and uh, found guilty of gross negligence. There have been other cases, of course, where negligence was cited um, when somebody was texting while driving. But this puts it into a whole other category.
1: Well, you know, what's interesting, Emily, is that you didn't need this new law in order to convict this young man of the very crimes for which he's being sent to the House of Correction for a year, um, because there was always a law on the books that made it a crime to operate a motor vehicle negligently, and there was for quite a while a law on the books that made it a crime to operate a motor vehicle negligently and to cause someone death. Um And what the legislature did back in September by adding a provision that said texting is unlawful is it just brought to the attention of the public the idea, which anybody should have known anyway, that if you are operating a car and you're texting on a mobile phone, you're much more likely to get into an accident. But the law didn't really add any additional penalties for anyone who is texting and driving in any substantial way because you could have been punished for exactly the same exactly. behavior under the old law.
0: I mean, is this the camel's nose under the tent, in a sense? Could we start adding other things? Uh, eating while driving, putting on mascara while driving, there, and drinking hot coffee while driving. There are so many things that people do that could cause... A, an accident by negligence if they're not paying, you know, even really playing really loud music or futzing with the radio or the stereo?
1: Well, this is the kind of law that I'd call a feel-good legislation. Uh, A problem comes up, people in the legislature think they have to do something, (coughs) so they pass a law that doesn't have any real effect, and it makes them feel better, it makes people who read about it feel better. But it was always a crime to operate a car negligently. And if you happen to cause an accident and someone dies as a result, that's going to be motor vehicle homicide. And adding a provision that says texting is one way in which you can be negligent didn't really change anything because that was always a possibility for a process. Yeah, right. uh, I
0: mean, it's almost like they wanted to single out a certain form of bad behavior, even though some of the others I just mentioned maybe not be quite as bad, although some of them um, you can get pretty darn distracted you know, doing crossword puzzle, for instance, while driving. Um, not that I've ever done that. Um, you, you know what I mean? It's there. It, it's almost like that was singled out as a, the most egregious behavior uh, imaginable, so that was added to it, but any number of things could be included.
1: Yeah, that's true, but I think in fairness, the phenomenon of texting was something that no one really would have thought about 15 years ago, so it it does serve a useful purpose, I think, to bring it to the attention of the public. And the legislation that, that added texting to the criminal laws also charged the Registry of Motor Vehicles with the responsibility of embarking on a campaign of public education. Yeah, that's and that's really what I think is necessary, because <clears throat> there are some people who will change their behavior because they read about this case or because there's a new statute that says that you are going to be fined if you text while drive. But um, I don't think the criminal law is the way to change behavior in this area. I think what we need is the kind of public campaign that we had that changed people's attitudes about smoking or the kind of um, public campaign that we had that changed people's attitudes about um, drinking and driving. And I think, frankly, what also might really help change people's behavior is giving the police the authority to stop someone that they have probable cause to believe is texting and driving. Because for a lot of people, getting pulled over by the police is what's going to change your behavior, not
0: the prospect mm-hmm. that eventually
1: you'll go to jail if you're unlucky exactly. it, to be the cause of an accident. Uh,
0: on the larger question of justice in a more philosophical sense, does, does this set a precedent for criminalizing personal behavior?
1: I think it really sets a precedent because texting while driving was something that almost every right thinking person thought was um, a, a, a danger to public safety, and when you have a severe danger to public safety, then that's something that the legislature very often makes criminal. Um, you know so I, I don't think that it will necessarily set a precedent for you know making it a crime to drink sugary beverages.
0: Oh, you don't know. This is Massachusetts.
1: (laughs) Well, uh, you know, we might take it off the shelf, but I don't know that we'll make it a crime. But as I said, you know, even if the legislature had done nothing, this case would have been prosecuted in very much the same way. I think that the jury probably would have returned a verdict because I don't think it's hard to convince a jury that if you're driving a car and you're looking down at a mobile phone and you're typing in A text message that that's negligent, and when you kill someone as a result, then they'll return the verdict they did, and you'll get the kind of sentence.
0: You you got to wonder if if this texting law had not been on the books, if if this uh, case would have even gone to trial.
1: Oh, sure, it would. You
0: think it would have gone to trial? Yeah, because the prosecutor's
1: office takes very seriously um, motor vehicle accidents where, where where the driver is who is responsible for the death of another person was doing something that could have avoided the accident that ordinary care suggests should not be done. And as I said, you know, before the legislature passed this law in September, I think that there would have been almost a unanimous consensus among right-thinking people that you don't text while you drive.
0: But that's what we're getting at. I mean, it's some of the other things I mentioned. It makes common sense not to do those either, but there's not a law on the book. Well, I think if
1: you're doing that, but there doesn't have to be because that would probably fall under the the, the general heading of negligence.
0: If well, so it is this. Problem, you're saying the same thing. It's it's, it's stupid. It's stupid behavior. You don't need to make it a crime. Cron- I mean, it, it is is negligent behavior. You don't have to single it out.
1: Well, when you're negligent in the way that you operate a motor vehicle, you do raise a significant risk of hurting somebody else, and we punish negligent. You know, it's a crime to operate a motor vehicle negligently, so the lives and safety of the public might be endangered. That's the language in Massachusetts. You don't actually have to hurt anybody. You don't have to get into an accident. You just have to drive your car negligently. That's a crime. Yeah. And we recognize that that's a crime because it poses such a danger. We know we don't criminalize ordinary negligence when you're walking down the street or when you're uh, up on the roof of your house doing repairs. But when you are you know, operating a 2,000-pound hunk of metal at 40 miles an hour on a public road where there are people crossing the street, That's enough of a problem so that we address it in the criminal law. And we've done that, you know, since the days of the Model T. This is not anything new, punishing negligence while you're behind the wheel.
0: The other thing that really strikingly calls attention to is how negligent operation of a motor vehicle really doesn't bring much of a sentence with it, even when you kill somebody. I mean, he, he was facing a maximum of four years. He got two and a half and only one of which he has to actually serve in jail. But... It's In the greater scheme of things, as compared to, say, murder, one, it's not that much.
1: Well, you know, I don't know how to answer a a comment that it's not that much because the question is compared to what? You know, compared to to
0: what? manslaughter.
1: I understand that. But the typical manslaughter case is someone who goes into a bar with a knife and gets into a fight and pulls out the knife and stabs someone, Um, you know, do we consider this kid to be as culpable as the person who um, pulled out a knife in response to a fistfight and used excessive force? Um, you know, when you consider the magnitude in a kid's life of serving mm. a year in the house of correction, um, I'm not sure that it's that it's wildly out of proportion to the other things that happen in Massachusetts and I think a lot of people's reactions to the length of sentences um, you're comparing um, the sentence that this kid got to sentences in cases that really are not comparable, like a murder or a manslaughter or sentences in other parts of the country where the sentencing practices are way harsher than they are in Massachusetts uh, you know if you compared what would happen to a case like this in other parts of the world it is not at all thats track we just happen to like putting people in jail for long periods of time for no good reason other than we think in some way that it'll change the behavior of other people, but it you know the the evidence for the phenomenon of people changing the behavior because some stranger goes to jail for a long time for doing something that most people um, think is not all that terrible it's
0: very very slim it's a very sad case all around for of course the family of daniel bowley jr and of course the family family of aaron devoe david rossman thank you so much for joining us
1: thank you emily bye-bye
0: Up next today, you can bet on a horse race at Suffolk Downs, but if CEO Chip Tuttle has his way, you'll also be able to bet at the craps table, see a show, have an elegant dinner, and stay the night at a luxurious hotel. We'll talk to him about his plan to turn the horse track into an urban oasis. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show from 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
2: This program is made possible thanks to you. And Earth, Wind & Fire, performing with a full string orchestra, coming to the Wang Theater at the City Performing Arts Center on Tuesday, June 12th. You can find tickets and information at citycenter.org. And direct tire and auto service. Well, I'm convinced that WGBH is like a cult. Barry Steinberg, president.
3: WGBH listeners are passionate about the station. A lot of our clients come in and thank us for sponsoring WGBH. They appreciate the fact that we've acknowledged the importance
2: of WGBH in the Boston community and they support us cuz we support the station. That's the truth. To learn more, visit wgbh.org/sponsorship.
0: On the next Fresh Air, Neil Young talks about his new Crazy Horse album, Americana, which features folk songs and songs many of us learned as children, like Oh Susanna and Clementine. Join us.
4: This afternoon at 2, here on 89.7 WGBH.
1: The WGBH Spring Auction has gone into extra innings. Bid high on a trip for two to the Windy City, the Aegean Sea, the Caribbean, or to any other JetBlue destination. You might even find yourself with tickets to see the New England Patriots take on the Miami Dolphins. Be a hometown hero, support public broadcasting,
3: and secure a great deal all at the same time. It's easy to do at
5: auction.wgbh.org.
1: Context beyond the headlines, issues you want to know more about, stories you'll want to share. News and depth online at WGBHnews.org.
0: You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. It's big, it's breezy, and it promises thousands of jobs. The Caesars Entertainment Group yesterday unveiled its plans to develop a resort-style casino on a 163-acre site at Suffolk Downs. The group also promised to share details of the plan in coming days, saying they intend to get community input on jobs and job training and outline plans for public safety, tourism, and entertainment partnerships. I'm joined here in the studio by Chip Tuttle. He's the chief operating officer at Suffolk Downs. Welcome, Chip.
5: Emily, thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: How did you think the rollout went yesterday?
5: I, I thought it went pretty well. We've uh, we've been talking about this for a long time, and and we've had uh, literally hundreds of meetings with with people around Boston and East Boston and Revere and, and our surrounding communities and on the North Shore and and. Uh, You know, yesterday was was really the start of a more formal public process. Now, as as we move into uh, trying to compete for one of the gaming licenses that was authorized by the passage of legislation last year.
0: Well, as you know, the proposal that Steve Wynn made for Foxborough landed like a thud to the point where Foxborough people, just the Foxborough residents, said, "We just don't want this this uh, uh, architectural rendering." At any rate. Is completely different from that. It's much more modern. It's it, it. doesn't look. Doesn't have the classic look of a casino. In fact, as somebody remarked yesterday, you can kind of forget that there is a casino there because it's the restaurants and the shows and you know the, the retail uh, operations. I mean, that's sort of part of the idea.
5: It is part of the idea, and and I think there's some sort of leftover stereotypical ideas about about gaming and gaming development based on, you know, people's impressions of, of old movies in Las Vegas and things like that.
0: Like it always has to be nighttime. Uh, yeah, and that you're trying to
5: trap somebody inside. Well, isn't right. a little of that too? <laughs> well, this this w- the design we showed yesterday, it is open, it is airy. It has up to 10 restaurants. Uh, I think eight of the 10 restaurants... Uh, open up onto the street, onto the sidewalk, indoor, outdoor. Uh, the idea is we wanted to connect uh, very much the older construction, Suffolk Downs, the the, the part of the grandstanding and, and clubhouse that was built in 1935, with the new construction, create a streetscape. I think the architect used the term uh, urban oasis. And the idea would be that when you turned into our driveway, you'd really feel like you were someplace different and, and entering a, a different area where... Uh, in addition to the gaming amenities, obviously there would be uh, lodging and shopping, and and nightclubs and restaurants, and and uh, you know a high end spa and and some of the the other recreation activities that people associate with that.
0: Now, how is this going to supplement the horse racing? Is that still going to be there?
5: Well, the the beauty of our proposal is that it. it it keeps horse racing here in Massachusetts. We're the last remaining thoroughbred racetrack in New England now, and and our ownership has invested a lot of money over the last several years to keep horse racing up and running. Uh, you know, in 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 1934, paramutual wagering passed in Massachusetts, and in 1935, Suffolk Downs really set the standard for uh, a modern racing and. Uh, and, and at that time, racing was the most popular form of gaming. But Suffolk set the standard then. And, and you know, it, since then, it, it's entertained millions of people and employed thousands of people. What we're talking about, what we unveiled yesterday, is really uh, trying to set the standard in this type of development for a new era. We believe that we have to set the standard for gaming in Massachusetts. That's a big responsibility, but it's one we take on. Uh, with gusto. And, and and so what we're trying to do here is is create a facility that will entertain millions of people, attract visitors not only locally but from out of town, and employ uh, new generations of, of local families. We're talking about up to uh, 4,000 jobs on the property uh, if we are successful earning a license and able to build the project.
0: We're going to be talking in, on Greater Boston tonight about how Boston has a hard time... Competing as a world-class city because of the restrictions surrounding liquor licensing and uh, hours of operation. Will you get a waiver on that? Will you be able to have serve liquor past (laughs) one or one o'clock in the morning? Yeah. No. uh,
5: According to the legislation, we're able to offer a 24-hour. Gaming operation, but we are subject to the local uh, the local licensing requirements of Boston, where a facility would be. So mm-hmm. that that means that there would be no wouldn't have any It'll ability to serve alcohol between two and eight a.m. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. What about um, this the referendum? Are you concerned about that at all? It's a question of whether uh, East Boston and I guess a couple of the contigu- contiguous neighborhoods gets to vote versus the entire city. If you had it your way, which way which way would you have the hu- entire city vote or just the the neighbors?
5: Well, <clears throat> two things on that. We we are located actually in two uh, municipalities, Revere and uh, East Boston, or Revere and Boston, technically. So we have to have host community agreements with both cities, and then uh, the ballot questions would be Revere, the entire city, and East Boston only would be the ward that the development is located in. Uh, what? What, Isn't
0: that what's at issue, whether it should yeah, be just Yeah, and,
5: and, and the yeah. city council and the mayor of Boston could opt out of that and opt to make that citywide. Uh, I think what the legislature was trying to do was balance that so that the host community would have the benefit of the development, but the neighborhood most affected would be able to vote. Uh, we have a lot of employees in East Boston. I've worked there for a long time. We know a lot of folks in East Boston. They're very interested in in having that be East Boston only. I think we'll do well either way. I, I feel good That's about I our prospects. Um, but, you know, it's really not up to us.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, if my guess is that the entire city voted. They say, yeah, sure. Let Steve have it. <laughs> well, it, it,
5: I mean, the, this uh, – our – Gaming is not everyone's cup of tea, right. and, and we know that we're realistic about that. There are some people who just oppose it uh, on, on moral or religious reasons. Uh, but there is a uh, – I think because Suffolk Downs has been an existing gaming destination for 77 years, there is a sense out there that that if, if we're going to do this in Massachusetts, that Suffolk Downs is a natural place to do it. Also part of that is is we feel we're the best site. We have so many advantages. We're 5 minutes from an international airport with the ability to attract visitors to the to the area. We're 10 minutes from downtown and all types of attractions. Uh, that that we can complement and, and entertainment facilities and uh, the new convention center that that we've as a as a state and you know the area we've we've invested so much in so we really uh, if if you're looking around the state and you, and you're going to pick a place Suffolk Downs seems like the place to be.
0: What about the 22 billion dollar debt that's being carried by Caesars right now? Does that give you pause in terms of their? Financial solvency. You know, I'm not sure exactly what the financial arrangement is with you and Suffolk, and with uh, Caesar's. You haven't said, but that, that, does it does it concern you?
5: Yeah. Well, we we have said. Uh, I mean, uh, Richard Fields, who is a a horse racing guy and and casino developer, uh, Richard Fields and Joe O'Donnell, a local businessman and philanthropist, are our principal owners. And Richard and Joe uh, have the you know they have. They're the main owners of Suffolk Downs with Vornado Realty Trust. Caesars is our gaming management partner, and we needed a partner that was best in class, that, uh, you know, Caesars got great experience managing these facilities all over the world. They also have uh, state-of-the-art marketing capabilities, and culturally, they were a good fit for us. Uh, Gary Loveman, uh, who is the, the chairman, CEO, and president of Caesars, lives in Wellesley. He's a former Harvard professor. He understands Boston. He gets the area. Uh, I was surprised as we went through this process that Caesars is the greenest casino company. They have all kinds of environmental and sustainability initiatives. Uh, they they have best practices in, in dealing with problem gambling and things like that. So they were a great cultural fit. And and like a lot of companies, yeah, they have uh, they took on a lot of debt when the economy was great. And when the economy went, went south in 2008, well, they're dealing with it. But we are... I should say we are hundred percent certain in our ability to finance a billion dollar investment here. So, so based on based on just the strength of the partnership. Well, what's
0: the financial arrangement with them? What are they going to? Well, do that,
5: they they uh, currently they our uh, gaming management agreement with them. They have less than five percent of the equity in Suffolk Downs.
0: Uh-huh. I mean, a lot of this debt is going to be coming due and. In- 2015, which is about mm-hmm. the time that uh, your casino would be opening. I just, you know, that's 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 a big burden for even a, a company that you know deals yearly in the billions.
5: Yeah, the, we we're very very comfortable with Caesar's as a partner, and and we uh, we took a hard look at that, and uh, we feel good about where we're headed.
0: You know, one of the issues here, of course, is for the governor. He's convinced that this is going to be not, not necessarily the panacea, but he believes that. You know, there's been projections around the n- number of $200 million or more um, in additional revenues to the state each year. Do you think you're going to be able to ma- – could one casino match that?
5: <clears throat> yes, uh, I think so. And in fact, uh, we're fairly uh, positive about that. We, we, we took a conservative approach. Other people did the estimates for this market. You know, the, the governor, the legislature, yes, they all relied on, on a series of studies. And they estimated the size of, of the market that Suffolk Downs is in, the sort of eastern region of the state, uh, as, as anywhere from $800 million annually to over a billion. And, and uh, that's, those are their estimates, again, not, not ours. And that's where that $200 million in revenue to the state from a facility in this area uh, would come from.
0: Talking to Chip Tuttle, he's the chief operating officer for Suffolk Downs. Another hurdle you have to uh, cross or jump over is the newly formed uh, gaming commission. How does that work for you as a process? I mean, I'm sure they're going to haul you in there and ask you every imaginable <laughs> question about, you know, public safety. What are you going to do there and addictive gambling um, programs and all that kind of stuff.
5: Well, it is a process. We have to, we started that process yesterday. We rolled out our development plans. We have to have host community agreements, then ballot questions. Only then can we go to the Gaming Commission and say, and knock on the door and say, hey, we'd like to apply for one of these licenses. I I said earlier that we have to set the standard for this in Massachusetts. and, and, And we truly believe that. The Gaming Commission has a lot of leeway. Uh, but the, the legislature outlined 16 specific criteria that they have to evaluate uh, the people's applications on. And, and so we've got to be the best in all of those. I mean we have to have – we have to, to make sure the economic benefits – don't only go to us as the owners, but they that they go to the surrounding community, that we have job creation and job training that benefits the surrounding community, that we do uh, lots of road and infrastructure improvements, that we create partnerships with downtown businesses and, and with the city of Boston and, and with local businesses that we hire locally, that we buy locally. I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the reports that the legislature relied on one of the the gaming consultants, uh, suggested that each of these casino developments could have uh, 1,200 hotel rooms. The plan that we unveiled yesterday includes 300 hotel rooms in an initial stage and then a potential second hotel boutique for, you know, high-end boutique of 150 rooms. That's far below what the, I think it was the Spectrum Report said we could do or, or should do. And the reason for that is we have 30,000 hotel rooms within a five-mile radius of Suffolk Downs. And so we're going to have to go out and create partnerships with these hotels. One of the reasons that we've felt good about Caesars is because they've done this in other areas. Their facility that they manage in New Orleans spends 8 to $10 million a year buying hotel rooms for its guests you know in and around yeah, New Orleans good. they spend 4 yeah. to 5 million a year sending their guests to New Orleans restaurants so if if we were to go down there and stay at the the facility in New Orleans you don't have to eat there. You want to go to the French yep. Quarter. You know, similarly, guests, a yeah, <laughs> gu- guests at our at, at our development might want to go to the North End, the Back Bay. Uh, they might want to go up the North Shore to, to my hometown of Salem. So w- that's the stuff that we're going to really focus on uh, over the next several weeks.
0: Chip, does casino saturation concern you at all? I mean, if we had three resort destination casinos here in Massachusetts, plus one run by the... Um, Mashpee, Wampanoags. Could we sustain that?
5: I, I think uh, there was careful analysis given to the the size and strength of the Massachusetts marketplace and, and the idea that Massachusetts residents currently spend $1 billion a year with uh, these facilities in Rhode Island and and Connecticut and, and uh, even across the border in New York. What uh, – I think that has to do more with the size and scope of the facilities. Uh, if someone proposed to build, you know, something bigger than Foxwoods or Mohegan Sun in the middle of the state, that might be the case. Our our proposal is for th- something about for for your listeners who are familiar with Foxwoods or Mohegan Sun, something about two thirds that scope. And other proposals are are for uh, potentially for for less than that, and and. Because of that, I, I think, and and our team thinks, that uh, that the state should be, you know, that this is uh, the right mix for the state.
0: All right. Chip Tuttle, Chief Operating Officer for Suffolk Downs. Good luck in the months and years <laughs> to come <laughs> getting me through all those hurdles. Thanks for coming in.
5: And Thank you again for having me, Emily.
0: All right. Up next, the science and the art of changing the public's opinion. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show from 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
2: This program is on WGBH thanks to you and Harvard Vanguard Medical Associates offering complete health care for you and your family. With 21 locations across greater Boston, Harvard Vanguard welcomes new patients and accepts most insurance. CareMadeEasy.org, an affiliate of Atreus Health. And Skinner Auctioneers and Appraisers, presenting their auction of fine jewelry on Tuesday, June 12th at Skinner's Boston Gallery. Offering diamonds, natural pearls, colored stones, and signed pieces. Online bidding available at SkinnerInc.com. And InuWindow, presenting the Hunter Douglas Celebration of Light Window Fashions event, featuring Hunter Douglas Duet Architella energy-efficient shades, silhouette, and luminette shading systems. InuWindow.com.
4: On the next Callie Crossley show, Aging with Autism. The CDC reported earlier this year that one out of every 88 children has autism or a related disorder. So what does this mean for society when these kids grow up and their parents are no longer around to take care of them? Will there be enough government resources for people who have autism in their adulthood? Is something that Boston-based lawyer Fred Misalow thinks about a lot. That's Today at 1 on WGBH. Hi, my name's John, and I'm a WGBH sustainer. Sustainers like John break their gifts down into monthly installments that automatically renew. That helps 89.7 plan better, and better plans mean fewer fundraisers. And that's why John is responsible for this hour of programming coming to you fundraiser-free. Thanks, John. Support WGBH as a sustainer online at WGBH.org.
2: Local issues, local talk. Yet
3: today, Massachusetts remains one of two states that do not grant inmates access to DNA evidence after they have been convicted.
1: 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
0: You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. Why do people change their minds about controversial subjects? Last week, a federal appeals court in Boston ruled that the Defense of Marriage Act was unconstitutional. Polls have shown that over time, the public has become more accepting about the idea of same-sex marriage. So how did it happen? What does it take to get people to change their opinions on topics like that? How about abortion, desegregation, suffrage? Joining me to discuss how public opinion shifts over time is Tom Whelan, a social studies, prof- social sciences professor at <laughs> Boston University. And by telephone, Will Friedman. He's the executive director of Public Agenda. Welcome to both of you. While I was just talking about casinos. And, mm. Tom, you're a local guy. You know that when this idea first came up, in the mid-'70s, I remember they were talking about developing a casino in Greylock Glen out in the Berkshires. I mean, it was just shot down, like, practically unanimously. I think I had one vote in uh, the state legislature. But now here we are. We've got them. So what? taking that by example, what happened?
4: Well, a lot of what drives that is the economic realities of our day. I mean – the coffers of most local governments are pretty empty, and they're struggling for any kind of revenue they can bring in. And the panacea now these days seems to be uh, gambling casinos.
0: Yeah, but you know, well, this issue—it was—it was—it was voted down on moral grounds. You mm-hmm. know, that it was going to bring in the the wrong element, and it was going to be stealing money from the people who could least uh, afford it, afford to lose it. And now, now those moral objections have just disappeared. Why?
3: Well, uh, people need to wrestle with different sides of an issue and and, and weigh the different trade-offs against each other. Um, the problem is they don't always have great opportunities to do that, but there are moral considerations, economic considerations, uh, quality of life considerations, and um, there there has to be a process that people could go through in order to for their opinions to evolve. So different things come up at different times.
0: So take me through a process. I mean, how long does it take? This, this one's been about, <laughs> let's see, uh, 40 years. But uh, women getting the right to vote, uh, mm-hmm. same-sex marriage, um, interracial marriage, uh, desegregation. I mean, take me through the process.
3: Right. So it takes different amounts of times for different issues. Um, women in the workplace is an issue that the country worked through over 50 years or so. In the late 30s, 22 percent approved. The late 80s. 78 percent approved Um, in our own research we find that people uh, um, the general public saying um, that a college education is essential going from 31 percent to 55 percent over about nine years and that's you know much quicker Um, so you know the, the the answer as far as the timing goes is it depends on a lot of factors but there are stages that people tend to need to go through and the question is how to help them get through them. What we find is that the public tends to go through, there are sort of several stages you can identify. Um, and the beginning we talk about as you know, awareness and developing a sense of urgency. That's sort of stage one where, where an issue needs to kind of get on the public's radar and not just become something that they're uh, distantly aware of, but something that they start to feel anxious and concerned enough about that they're actually willing to engage the issue, and as people get urgent about an issue, it kind of catapults them into uh, a second phase that uh, we sometimes call working through. Uh, and that stage is sort of the messy heart of democracy, where people kind of understand there's no easy, simplistic answer that there are trade-offs involved, but we got to, you know, confront this damn puzzle, trying to work it through, and try to find something that most of us can live with, um, and that the trade-offs involved are things we're willing to deal with. And that, you know, once, once people begin to get on the other side of that and come to a sort of a new resolution based on, you know, new information, uh, new arguments, changing circumstances, et cetera, as Tom said, the, the economy changing, yeah. and that bringing other things up uh, to, to people's consciousness. Um, then there's you know then there's a sort of integrating. Well, we're in a new place and we got to have to get used to it and see what it actually means and 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 I actually start to live with it.
0: Mm. You know, Tom, I was thinking that a, a lot of these issues start kind of. It's almost this is oversimplifying, mm-hmm. but a matter of taste. People object to something because they don't like it. Don't like the idea of same-sex marriage. Don't like the idea of allowing women to vote or don't like the idea of interracial marriage. So you want something banned that you don't like. And so part of this process is, is coming to accept something, allowing something to be legal, mm-hmm. even if you object to it. The, the, one, the, the toughest one, I think, is abortion because, mm-hmm. you know, you, you can say, look, I don't like it. I'm against it. Personally, I wouldn't do it. It's got to be legal. But the argument against that would be, yeah, but it's murder.
4: Right, and you know the women's liberation movement in the nineteen seventies. It coincided with the suburbanization and the economic downturn in our nation's economy in the nineteen seventies, and women needed to go to work to get that second paycheck to help regular middle class families to maintain a certain level of um, of income and uh, you know standard of living, and. I think what we need to talk about here too is that in these kinds of moments, these social movements of change, you need a galvanizing moment oftentimes. The civil rights movement in the 1960s, um, March 7th, 1965, the march on, uh, at Selma, Alabama, when protesters, civil rights protesters led by now Congressman John Lewis were brutally beaten up by the local white police force. It was known as Bloody Sunday. And that was captured live by television cameras and crews, and it was broadcast throughout the nation in people's living rooms. And for the very first time, people around the nation saw the brutal face of what was our version of apartheid here in the American South. And that allowed President Johnson at the time to push through Congress the seminal Voting Rights Act, which removed the last legal barrier of uh, segregation in our country. Hmm. So it can happen quite suddenly, but like in the civil rights case, it's always kind of percolating below the um the surface, but it can come out in surprising and fast ways b- before you even realize it
0: but there are some issues either one of you um will Friedman or Tom, weigh on in on this one that you are 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 never going to be resolvable even, even through all the phases that you just discussed will i mean i I go back to the issue of abortion because even while even though it's legal um it's 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 never going to be accepted in the same way that uh uh civil rights or or one of those am I correct
3: well um i I don't think it's ever going to be easy. I don't think it's ever going <laughs> <laughs> to be an easy issue, but I think it depends on what you mean by 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 resolve um I think society you know stop fighting it, to...
0: stop fighting the fact that it's 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 legal i mean there there's still people who are fighting to make it illegal I mean, and I realize that's happening with uh you know the Defense of Marriage Act. There will be a pushback on that, but that that's 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 heading in a in one direction. I mean the the the, the tide of public opinion has changed dramatically about same-sex marriage to the point where more than fifty percent um, think it should be legal.
3: Exactly, exactly.
4: Well,
0: I think it's which important- goes
3: to show so- that you know that, that even on very very uh, deeply felt issues, things can change.
4: Mm-hmm. I
3: think abortion is going to be one of the tougher ones, but um, you know the example you just gave, I think. Indicates that many things are possible.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, I think about things like smoking. The ban on smoking, not just in the workplace, but basically virtually anywhere. Mm-hmm. Somebody got in the elevator with me yesterday here at GBH, and I went, "Huh, she's a smoker," because I could just smell it on I mean, her And and I got me to thinking, "Gosh, nobody smokes anymore." I mean, what what was the galvanizing moment for that?
4: Well, I think there, the improvement in mass communications, um, scientific uh, breakthroughs you know, various studies that prove, you know, the Surgeon General said, you know, if you smoke, you are increasing your risk of cancer. That came out in the 1960s, changed a lot of uh, personal habits. I don't want to die. That's always a pretty good reason to um, break a bad habit like that. But but something else you said, I think it's important to bring up that when you bring about massive social change, such as women's liberation, reproductive rights, you can oftentimes spawn kind of a, a counter- social movement, a reactionary social movement, like in the 1980s with the, um, you know, the Jerry Fowell types, uh, you know, the moral majority, or even today in our present day, the Tea Party. And they feel in their heart of hearts that we've strayed from our true course, that we need to return ourselves to this mythical past when all was, was right. And so I think, you're never going to be completely resolved. You're never going to have 100% acceptance per se on particular issues. Right, that's democracy. That's <laughs> right. And,
3: and uh, you know, and I think the galvanizing moment concept is useful, but it's incomplete. And Tom himself said that you know there was a lot percolating under the surface before the the, the march on Selma. Um, so as far as a smoking example goes, I mean, I think I think that was uh, sort of eaten away at over many years. Um, as we kept coming back to it. Kept coming back to
0: it. But it's usurped um, individual rights. I mean, we've banned it virtually everywhere. It's one thing, inside. People are banning it outside, you know, their (laughs) workplace. Seriously. I mean, it's just, you know, my attitude was, was always knock yourself out. I don't want to smoke. But I understand why you can't smoke in the workplace or in a bar at this point. But basically, it's gone to the point where it's, um, you know, socially reviled. Pretty close. (laughs) <laughs> but I think there
4: too. I think everyone's known someone who's lost someone to cancer in yeah. their lives, and you know I, that really kind of hits cancer, home. Cancer,
0: the fear of cancer was—I'm not sure. It mm-hmm. just became, you know, an ugly habit, and it, well, people knew about the, the cancer risks for decades before they really got on the no smoking bandwagon. I
3: think that's exactly right. there—I there, mean, there, there was a, uh, the norms change, yeah. and there are a lot of factors that go into, you know, what kind of begins. Let's not call it galvanizing moment, but what galvanizes this kind of change process where people really begin to confront some realities in a new way and begin to think about an issue differently. And sometimes that's a real sort of you know, grassroots kind of a process. Sometimes it's more top-down. Sometimes there's a lot uh, that has to do with technology changing the economy, which then changes people's lives. And you know, all of a sudden, you know, we, we can't make ends meet without two people working. And then you have to think about that traditional arrangement in a different way. Um, so there's a lot of different uh, pressures, and it takes a historian to kind of – you know, in a specific case to trace um, the particular narrative that makes sense. But it's still the case, I think, that people need to start to confront an issue in new ways and, and understand the choices involved in new ways and begin to grapple with that and come to a new place that then public policy can rest on
0: talking to Will Friedman, Executive Director of Public Agenda, and Tom Whelan, uh, Social Sciences Professor at Boston University. We're talking about changing public opinion and how long it takes and on what issues. And I think, Tom, there's kind of this conventional wisdom that the public is easily manipulated. You know, listen to some of the cable diatribe mm-hmm. shows and that kind of thing, but. Is that true, or are you really only talking to people who already are convinced or have already been persuaded? Because it feels like some of that stuff is you're trying to bring people over to your side, trying to convince you. But maybe that's not the case. Maybe those people are already convinced.
4: well. I think a lot of times it's just a matter of education. People are unaware of certain factors that may go into a particular issue. And you know, for example, you talked about smoking. Well, until people really understood the science, you know, by inhaling all this smoke in your lungs in the 1960s and 1970s they couldn't make a real kind of reasonable choice on how to proceed with their behavior.
0: What are some other examples of the the the, the tactics of persuasion? I I see with one of the, one of the things here is eventually people need to come to the point where they take a stand intellectually. We were talking about the emotions involved in um, a lot of the things we've already talked about, you, you, you don't like something. You object to it because it's distasteful or objectionable to you in some personal way. But then you've got to move to this point where you're taking a more intellectual stand. How how do people get sort of cross that barrier where they really object to it so vociferously that, that they can actually intellectualize it to, to, to come around?
3: Yeah, I, you know, uh, to kind of combine this with your last question, I don't know of the issue so much that uh – I mean I think it is possible to manipulate the public but I think what's even more possible is to confuse and make it hard for the public to really think through an issue effectively and therefore they stay mired and that leaves the you know that leaves it to the interest groups that have the you know the, the most sway to kind of deal, yeah, with, yeah. deal with the issue. Well that's a so, good point.
0: I mean cuz is how much does money factor into persuasion of public opinion?
3: I you know and, and I I you know the, Persuasion is sort of one of the I mean obviously a lot, and people place huge bets on on investing huge amounts of money to try to persuade public opinion but I think we could also reframe that question I mean what one question is how can you most effectively persuade people to your point of view and that's where that's a billion dollar industry, and you can uh, get people who uh, essentially specialize in trying to um, manipulate or shift public opinion in the direction that you desire. But the larger question, and I think an important question for somebody like you, Emily, in the, in, the, in the media, is how do you help the public grapple more effectively with issues so that you're not trying to persuade them to your point of view, you're trying to help them figure out what's most important to them in this democracy.
0: Well, that brings up a whole other issue, which is opinion media, which has just taken off in the last couple of decades. And there's a general sense that uh, the Republicans or the conservative media, I should say, are better at persuasion and buzz phrases and uses of language and Mm -hmm. all kinds of things, tactically are more effective than liberals or Democrats. Think that's true, Tom?
4: Well, I think hyperbole is very entertaining. And, you know, I think the problem with liberals is that they usually start on the basis of reality. And, you know, what you're, when you're talking about the conservative media, it's kind of these kind of wild accusations, these wild conspiracy <laughs> theories. And, uh, you know, every time you listen to Fox News, you, you get that kind of take. And I think that resonates uh, for a certain group of people.
3: And I guess I would add that I think there's, an, you know, there, there may be an argument to be made that one uh, partisan group has gotten better than the other at persuading people of their ideology and therefore, you know, The other partisan group needs to get better at it to balance that out. I think that's a fair concept to play with. But I think the additional concept that's important is, is there a third force of some sort that's actually helping the public sort through these various, you know, points of view, these various arguments in a way that, you know, busy people can actually uh, um, trust? Is there? Well, uh, actually, our society isn't great at it. I mean, we're, we're much better at riling people up about an issue than we are at actually helping them work it through.
0: We used to be and better I think at one the, of the, uh, things that's missing. the former. We used to be better at the former. I mean, well, I, mean,
4: I think the other factor here, too, is charismatic leadership plays a huge role if you want to bring about massive societal change. You know, FDR ended the whole mindset of isolationism even before the attack on Pearl Harbor. You know, everyone was expecting if war came it would be against Germany. On the eve of Pearl Harbor, we had an undeclared naval war against Nazi Germany in the North Atlantic. But he did not get too far ahead of public opinion. He gradually prepared the United States because he saw early on the threat Hitler posed to the world. And step by step, patiently, he brought the United States to the point where Americans were accepting of interventionist foreign policy.
0: You know, well, I'm I'm wondering at this stage how we even measure public opinion anymore. It used to be Pretty easy. You would either send somebody a form in the mail. You'd call them on the telephone. People don't answer their phones. <laughs> they don't have the only lines. got cell. They, they don't <laughs> have a landline. I mean, mm-hmm. how are we doing this? How, how, how's this even working?
3: Yeah, it is getting harder, and um, th- there are methods that take cell phones into account. And you have to now, or else you're basically losing, you know, a, a whole younger de- demographic in your surveys. Um, so we have to take account of the, the way people communicate these days, and it, it is a little trickier to do. But what's probably more important, um, uh, at least to my mind, than the techniques involved uh, are the technical issues, is whether we're really distinguish whether we're asking democratically important questions and whether we're distinguishing the answers that we get mm-hmm. between those that people have actually thought about uh, and are somewhat, therefore, stable, or just their knee-jerk reactions that can change on a dime. From a from a point of view of helping society think these things through and create policy, that's a really important distinction to make.
0: Uh, literally how something is phrased, how a question is phrased. How a question
3: how... is phrased and, 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 and how you listen to the answer, I guess I would say, is part of it.
0: Mm-hmm. I used to joke back in my local TV days, we'd always have this question on our surveys, um, would you like do you prefer your your news live well I mean you know what what, what, what is somebody gonna say so so then it it, it sparked this unbelievable just everybody a story could have happened 12 hours ago or 12 days ago but you had to do a live shot in front of the building in front of the site because what was any committee to no I'd rather have it dead or I'd rather have it three days old but so everybody followed suit Doing, it and actually you still see it it's still in existence yeah. but it was it was it was the way the question was asked
4: well it could be Orwellian too because you know when you think about you know Mitt Romney and this has been raised in this campaign you know how did he close the budget gap in Massachusetts well he raised taxes basically yeah. but he's fees. saying it was fees yeah, right. but and I mean and raised Reagan in the 1980s said revenue enhancement measures, which was a mouthful, but you can see how just how you phrase things can really change people's perceptions.
0: Yeah. Do you think, um, well, these days people are more rigid? Is it going to be harder to persuade people because of all the partisanship? I mean, if people become more entrenched?
3: Right. I, I mean, I, I think that's definitely true in the Beltway. The real question is whether it's true throughout the country, and there's there's an argument about that now in the literature, and there are some people who are arguing that people are becoming more ideological. I have to say though I I've, I've probably done like close to a thousand focus groups and community forums uh and dialogues of various kinds uh in my career and I've done a lot recently and while I do see a little bit more frequent um parroting of of ideological lines that you might hear on cable television at the very outset of a conversation with citizens about issues uh, that falls away really quickly. And in general, the American public is pretty pragmatic, not deeply ideological. Um, they're really concerned with their, you know, the basic things of their lives and their kids' prospects. Uh, There's a little bit of more of an ideological overlay than there used to be, but that basic sort of pragmatism, I find, is still really there. Now, in the Beltway, it's a whole other story. Yeah, that's
0: true. All right, Will Friedman, Executive Director of Public Agenda, calling in from New York City. Thanks so much for being with us.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Tom Whalen is still here in the studio, and I'm going to have one more question for Tom. Okay. Because you wrote a book on... Bill Russell. Oh, yes. What did you think of the Celtics win last night? And what do you think? Are they going to take the heat?
4: Uh, I think they will now. And it reminds me of that uh, last season of Bill Russell in 1969. They were down in a 2 0 deficit in the NBA Finals and pulled it off. All they right. And they were also injured.
0: We're taking that to heart. All right, we'll be back tomorrow at noon. And stay with us now for the Kelly Crossley Show coming up next. We hear a lot about children with autism, but what happens after those kids become adults? And tonight on my television show, more on the Haverhill texting case. That's tonight at 7 on Channel 2. The Emily Rooney Show is a production of WGBH Radio on the web at WGBH.org Boston Public Radio. I'm Emily Rooney. Have a great afternoon. It's too
4: It's To your mind You let laws Be your god